1: The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. The North Carolina General Assembly recently passed the 2023 North Carolina budget, which became law without the signature of the governor. The budget includes not only appropriations, but also administrative changes, including changes to the composition of the North Carolina Judicial Standards Commission. The North Carolina Judicial Standards Commission is responsible for investigating complaints against judges and judicial officers in North Carolina and recommending necessary action to the North Carolina Supreme Court. Before the passage and enactment of the 2023 budget, the 14-member Judicial Standards Commission included six judges appointed by the North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice, Four lawyers by the State Bar Council and four lay people, two selected by the General Assembly House and Senate leaders, and two selected by the North Carolina governor. Under the new budget, the four lawyers previously selected by the State Bar Council will now be four judges selected by the General Assembly House and Senate leaders. As a result, the Lawyers Association, the State Bar, is not able to select any member of the commission. And the only way a lawyer will be on the commission is if a lawyer is selected to fill one of the four private citizen appointments. This is very concerning, given the politicized environment in the state, which has impacted our judiciary. Although the North Carolina Judicial Standards Commission is supposed to be a nonpartisan investigative, investigative body, The changes to the composition of the commission gives one political party, the Republican Party, the power to select 12 of the 14 members. And this raises concerns about the potential weaponization of the commission against judges who are members of the opposing party. In fact, North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls, the only African-American woman and Democrat on the North Carolina Supreme Court, has recently filed a federal lawsuit against the North Carolina Judicial Standards Commission after the body opened an investigation, the second this year, into comments she made made about diversity of the state's judicial system based on an anonymous complaint. This most recent investigation, the second of this year, was filed in August. The first complaint was filed in March and dismissed in May. On tonight's show, we're going to discuss the role of the Judicial Standards Commission, the changes in the composition, and the potential for abuse by this body. We have joining us for this discussion, NCCU Law alum and former North Carolina Court of Appeals judge Wanda Bryant, who served as a Court of Appeals judge for almost 20 years. She is also a former chair of the North Carolina Judicial Standards Commission. We also have joining us former North Carolina Court of Appeals Judge Chris Brooke. Judge Brooke is a lawyer with Pat Patterson-Harkavy, and he is also an adjunct constitutional law professor here at NCCU School of Law. Thank you both for joining us this evening.
2: Thank you, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me, I really appreciate it.
1: So Judge Bryant, you are a former chair of the North Carolina Judicial Standards Commission. Can you share your thoughts on the, um, the purpose and the importance of, of this commission and um, why it's vital that we have a body that is able to investigate complaints against judges.
3: Right, thank you. Thank you again for for having me. Um, Yes, I was chair of this commission, Judicial Standards Commission for uh, about six years uh, while I served as a judge on the North Carolina Court of Appeals. And you may know that the protocol has been um, that the second most senior judge on the Court of Appeals uh, chairs the Judicial Standards Commission. That's how uh, it has typically uh, been. Uh, There have been some structural changes since I left. Uh, When I was there, there was only one Court of Appeals judge on the commission, and that was the chair. And that remained the case the entire time I was there. Um, Subsequently, there are now two Court of Appeals judges, I understand, that are chair and vice chair of the commission. making it a 14-member commission, if I'm not mistaken, as opposed to the 13-member commission that I shared, excuse me, chaired um, all those years. As you indicated, the role of the commission uh, is to investigate complaints uh, against judges, um, complaints that come from litigants, from lawyers, from other judges, um, sometimes complaints that arise Uh, based on things that the commission has obtained uh, on its own. So there were a number of ways in which uh, we reviewed uh, complaints against judges and investigated those complaints. And um, one of the things that was um, pretty constant is that the majority of the uh, complaints came from litigants uh, who were dissatisfied with a judge's ruling. Um, And of course, there was always the allegation of bias, that the judge was biased and uh, against them because they ruled against them. And so the majority of those complaints, because they were not uh, credible complaints of um, uh, anything that would come close to a violation of the code, uh, were generally dismissed. So there were lots of investigations, but one of the other aspects of what we did as a commission, and particularly what the staff of the commission did quite well, uh, was to... Educate judges, particularly new judges, um, on the Code of Judicial Conduct, how important it was to um, understand the ethical obligations that one has as a judge uh, when you step uh, up on the bench and, uh, put on, or put on that robe or sometimes uh, outside of court. But you always have that continuing obligation to understand that you your behavior um, uh, was something that could be subject to discipline if uh, you violate it the code of judicial conduct. And so there were constant um, courses that were taught, again, to new judges and reaffirming courses, I call them, uh, that were taught to existing judges, because many times we kind of forget that, um, you know, we're all subject to these uh, rules uh, of the code. And uh, it's very important to be reminded of our ethical responsibilities, because, you know, judges many times, I've never been a trial court judge. I've been before a, a number of trial court judges throughout my career before uh, going on the bench. But, you know, judges many times when they're in their own court, they feel like that's their fiefdom and they have to be reminded that, you know, it's important to uh, be, if not kind, at least um, <laughs> uh, responsive uh, to litigants, to the lawyers, to anyone that um, is before you and to, um uh, and to treat them with the respect that is ex- expected of a court of appeals judge, or excuse me, uh, a, any judge uh, in the in the state. So that's some of hopefully uh, a response to your question. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you for that. And Judge Brooke, you were appointed to the North Carolina Court of Appeals in 2019. Um, so I'm assuming that you were able to benefit from some of the education that Judge Bryant was talking about as far as um, the commission being a resource for for new uh, judges. But I wanna get your thoughts on when we're thinking about um, investigating complaints, when we're thinking about providing judges with um, education on how to engage in best practices, why it's important to have lawyers on that commission um, prior to being appointed to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. You just spent a lot of time in court before many of our state judges. Can you share your thoughts about the importance of having lawyers um, as part of the commission in terms of the work that the commission does?
2: Absolutely. And thanks again for having me. I will uh, admit that I'm deeply tickled to get to serve with Judge Bryant again and also feel slightly underqualified, as I did when on the court to serve with Judge Bryant, as she was, as she noted, for a long time, number two at the court. And I, during my almost two years, was consistently number 15, (laughs) the junior justice in every circumstance. So that um, gives you some uh, idea of the, the, the different experience here. Um, Let me, um, Professor Dawson, tackle the resources for new judges uh, point first, because I think it's so important. Um, One of the things that I had to do very quickly uh, upon being appointed by Governor Cooper to the court was set up a campaign to run to keep my seat in uh, 2020. I think that literally six weeks after I was sworn into the court, I had a campaign committee running. So I was a first-time judge, but I was also a first-time candidate. And judges are not the same as other people who appear on the ballot. If you're running for governor, you can tell somebody, here's what I'm going to do as governor. If you're a judge, you should not be making those sorts of forecasts. When I get this sort of case, here's what I'm going to do. That's not our role. Um, But what Judicial Standards did was provide me with resources uh, in regards to the canons, in regards to how to navigate those canons day in, day out at the court, but also as a candidate who is going to be on the ballot. So formally, that was exceptionally helpful as I transitioned, but then also informally, um, uh, Judge Bryant made reference to the wonderful staff of judicial standards who's always available for informal consultation when particular circumstances would arise and you say, you know, I've been asked this question at a forum: What am I allowed to say? Uh, what am I not allowed to say in response to those questions? Not only it's a real practical advice to make sure and that we are doing everything we can to foster confidence um, in the judiciary. To the question about why you would eliminate lawyers, um, Professor Dawson, you tell me um, it, the categories of people who are going to have concerns about judges are gonna be litigants who appear in front of those judges, other judges who maybe see things that are problematic about practices in a courtroom or in a courthouse, and lawyers that appear in front of those judges. So part of the genius of the way that we had judicial standards set up is all three of those tranches that are most of people who are most likely to see when something is going awry or when there could be a challenge with a judge and a judge just needs a reminder, they're all represented. Listen, it's when you become a judge, it's easy to start thinking like a judge and not be able to think as much what it's like to look up at the judge as it is to look down as the judge. And having lawyers in that room to... You know, tell judges, you know, I understand why you feel that way about that practice, but let me tell you as a litigator how that comes across to me, how that comes across to my clients. So I thought part of the genius of judicial standards was bringing together the key stakeholders who have day in, day out interests in our courtrooms operating respectfully, professionally, and per the rule of law. And we've just eliminated one of those stakeholder groups that really should have a voice at the table. And I, I, I simply for the life of me cannot understand why you would want to do that.
0: Judge Bryan, let me just just ask you, you know, as the uh uh co-chair of of the uh well the chair I'm sorry of the uh judicial standards uh, commission what type uh complaints uh did you typically uh encounter and uh uh, how and I know that th- this is a confidential process uh, where people don't really know what is going on until and unless there is some determination of wrongdoing but in terms of the categories of uh, cases that you were basically confronted with uh, as uh, a member of that commission. Um, uh,
3: thank you Professor Joiner. you will always and forever be Professor Joyner uh, to me it's hard to just say Er, <laughs> but um, yeah the the commission, as I mentioned before, I you know the staff and which Chris uh, alluded to was that I had when I was there was just phenomenal, just absolutely phenomenal, and they did um, respond to inquiries from any judge whether they were on a campaign trail like Chris mentioned or whether they were. Uh, just in a courtroom, in a hearing, or otherwise had some concerns about something they were planning to do, a speech perhaps that they were planning to make. Uh, they might uh, ask uh, myself and staff uh, what what was and was not acceptable under the code because it you, you know it could be uh, gray uh, in certain in certain ways. So uh, I just wanted to follow up on that and um, just indicate how incredible uh, the staff was. And staff was responsible for processing the complaints that came through. Um, most of the complaints, and I think this is still the case, uh, the majority of the complaints uh, that arise and come before the commission are from litigants, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, usually, litigants in the courtroom again are dissatisfied uh, if the case did not come out in the manner in which they expected. Lots of um, you know civil litigants, uh, and you know even criminal uh, uh, litigants from time to time uh, would complain about the manner in which perhaps the trial took place or uh, the way in which the judge um, ruled on certain issues during the trial. So there were all kinds of complaints like that from, from litigants, mainly about what was going on inside the courtroom. From time to time, there would be a litigant that would say a judge was involved in something nefarious outside the court. Um, and, of course, we would try to check out everything uh, that that came before us as a commission. Um, but usually in the, in the courtroom, if a litigant indicated that there were certain issues, most uh, things were recorded. So we could easily go, our investigators or the, the staff investigators could easily go to the record in that courthouse and determine whether or not what the litigant was saying the judge had said or the actions that they said the judge had taken were um, uh, we could either verify or discount what the litigant was saying. Uh, so many times, I think that's why some of the reasons why many of the uh, cases that the litigants brought before the commission were just summarily dismissed because there was simply not enough credibility uh, to even go forward with an investigation. And, uh, you know, I'll talk more about the lawyers and their involvement with, with uh, the decision making uh, in the commission, as ter- in terms of whether to dismiss, whether to go go forward and seek more information, whether to seek a formal uh, uh, investigation, um, but um, but mainly it was uh, litigants that that formed the majority of the complaints. From time to time, judges complained against other judges, uh, bailiffs and others in the you know in the courthouse might complain against a certain judge, and uh, we took all of those complaints uh, seriously. Uh, evaluated them, and then again, if there was credibility to what was being uh, put before the commission, then we would seek further information, uh, either from other people that might have been witnesses uh, to action that was alleged, or again, there might have been tape recordings um, of what was alleged or not, and so we would try very hard to give um, due, uh, due diligence to uh, any complaint that came before us. But, you know, again, many times they were uh, the litigants that were just simply dissatisfied with the result that they had
2: gotten in court.
0: This is the uh, legal legal review. I and mean, you were just listening to uh, NCCU law alum and former North Carolina Court of Appeals uh, Judge uh, Wanda Bryant. Uh, Judge uh, Bryant was also the uh, former chair of the North Carolina Judicial Standards uh, Commission, and we're also talking with uh, former Court of Appeal Judge Chris Brooks, uh, who uh, is a lawyer now with uh, Patterson Parkave and is an adjunct constitutional law professor at North Carolina Central uh, Law School. Uh, We were talking about uh, changes to the uh, North Carolina Judicial Standards uh, Commission and we're going to continue that uh, conversation after we take a uh, brief uh, break. want you to uh, stay with us as we uh, continue. We'll be right back.
4: Hello, this is Kiana Woods, and I'm a third year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The month of September marks the observation of Latinx Heritage Month. Latinx Heritage Month began in 1968 as a week-long acknowledgement that transformed into a full month starting September 15 and lasting until October 15. The dates were selected to include the Independence Days of Chile, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico, and Nicaragua the Latinx Heritage Month was formed to recognize the legacies and contributions of those who identify as Latino and Hispanic. For more information about Latinx Heritage Month, you can visit hispanicheritagemonth.gov. This is Kiana Woods with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening.
0: OK, we're back on the uh, legal legal review. And thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this uh, conversation about the uh, North Carolina Judicial Standards uh, Commission and recent changes that's been made uh, to that body. We are talking with uh, two former uh, North Carolina Court of Appeal uh, judges uh, who has some information and uh, familiarity with that process, Uh, Judge uh, Wanda Bryant is the former chair of the uh, Judicial uh, Standards Commission and served in that role for uh, some uh, six years. And uh, Judge uh, Chris Brooks, uh, who is now a lawyer with Patterson-Harkivay and is an adjunct constitutional law professor at North Carolina Central uh, Law School. Uh, Starting us back, uh, Judge Brooks, want to kind of talk about, you know, as as a judge, uh, how are you uh, expected to separate out uh, your politics, uh, your personal uh, feelings, and then the uh, business of the people who come uh, before you such that it is consistent with the uh, dictates of the uh, judicial standards uh, uh, rules?
2: Very, very carefully. Um what, you know, I think is exceptionally important to appreciate, what I always took from my conversations with judicial standards, but also my review of the canon, is it's obviously, I think everybody gets this, important that when I was a judge, that I was not biased, that I did not have a bias, and that my personal feelings, uh, my political beliefs uh, did not sort of dictate a result or result in me reverse engineering a result, irrespective of the facts and of the particular case. That's the simple part, to me, at least. I think the harder part, but maybe even the more important part, because I think it's more salient, is that we need to ensure that the public does not have a perception that we have a bias or a perception that when they show up into a courtroom where we're presiding, that they don't have a chance. And this is goes back to Professor Dawson's question previously about the importance of lawyers on Judicial Standards Commission. Every one of us probably has been in, who's a lawyer in a courtroom where we felt we didn't, we stood up and we were like, why am I even talking? I don't have a chance uh, in front of this judge. And there is no worse feeling in my um, legal experience than knowing that I can do everything right and I can knock it out of the park and I'm just, I don't have a chance. And it's one thing if I've just got a losing case, you know, that, that is what that is. But it's another thing where in the back of my mind, I'm wondering whether I'm gonna get a fair hearing because the judge that I'm appearing in front of has expressed this view about this area of law or has talked about the need to support this faction or that faction or this political party or that political party or expressed, um, you know, thoughts about particular members of our community, be it criminal defendants or members of the LGBTQ community just off the top of my head. Right. Um. It's one thing to have a losing case. It's another thing when the public doesn't have confidence that they could win even with a winning case. So what I very much kept in mind when I was speaking on the campaign trail or when I'd give comments of a non-political variety is I wanted to ensure that everyone who was in the crowd, regardless of the topic I was uh, talking about, would feel like if they appeared in front of me um, that they would have a chance. Um, and that I had not prejudged their case and that I did not sort of convey an appearance of impartiality or something that could be construed as impartiality because that is a hammer blow against the system uh, that we want to set up and the confidence that we want people to have in the judicial system.
3: Can Can I add something to that? I'm sorry if I'm out of order, please let me know. Uh, But I would like to also add, uh, as Chris was saying, when you're on the campaign trail, you do get all kinds of questions and people want you to stake yourself out uh, in a different uh, particular position. Um, You know, and there are groups on either side of the spectrum who are really trying to force your hand. They try to get you as a candidate to say you're going to rule one way or another or that you're in favor of this uh, particular principle or other. And um, they uh, would issue uh, surveys, uh, for example, to have you answer uh, these questions about how you feel about certain things. And I would always answer either in a public forum or on the surveys, uh, basically saying, you don't want me to answer that question because if I gave a personal viewpoint, then I couldn't serve as a judge. I could not do my job because Therefore, I would be considered biased, and so it doesn't really matter how I feel about what you're asking uh, in a in the sense of, of how I'm going to rule later, and also because things come up in different contexts, and so uh, it would be um, uh, uh, very important not to uh, put something out there that um, would later be you know a different, or as I used to always say would prevent me from doing my job because the last thing I would want to do is recuse from a case based on bias, based on something that I had said at an earlier time about an issue that could come before the court. And uh, as one of the few African-Americans to sit on the Court of Appeals, I certainly felt felt it was my duty to always be uh, as fair and impartial and to appear that way and to let any uh, organization, uh, survey people, group, whatever, uh, know that because I did want to be able to do my job regardless. I apologize for jumping in.
1: <laughs> oh, no, thank you. No apology needed at all. I, and both of you have so eloquently emphasized the importance of having an independent judiciary and the um, not just um, having that independence, but the appearance, right, as well, that you need to have the community and society have faith in the judiciary. And as both of you were talking, I was, of course, reflecting on the Judicial Standards Commission. From my view, the change in the composition and how the members are selected and by whom, I think undercuts exactly what you all have been talking about in terms of the importance of the judiciary. Right. And so we've gone from a system that Judge Brooke talked about in terms of having judges on the commission, lawyers on the commission, um, lay people, private citizens on the commission, all of these groups interact with judges and should play a role in looking at these complaints. And with these changes, it is now a very lopsided commission. So out of the 14 um, members, 10 of those members are judges. Four of those members are private citizens maybe of those four, someone will select the lawyer, maybe not. But it's not a requirement that a lawyer be on the commission. So it's lopsided in terms of the composition, who's actually looking at these complaints, Um, many more lawyers than not, or many more judges than, than other folks. And then the other very concerning thing is, who's actually making the selections? And so we have the leaders of the North Carolina General Assembly House and Senate, um, which is controlled by one party, we have the Chief Justice of the of North Carolina, which is of a particular party. And again, our judicial elections used to be, um, you know, you wouldn't identify your your party. That has changed. So now we know the party affiliation of our judicial candidates. Um, And then you have the governor and our governor happens to be in the other party, but the vast majority, you know, what, um, 12 of the 14 will be selected by one party. So it's lopsided in both ways. And that seems to really undercut the um, nonpartisan nature of this commission the independence of the commission and raises the issues of weaponization of this commission against judges who are from another party can you talk about and i don't want to you know make y'all feel uncomfortable so you know and and again both of you are judges former judges you have been involved in campaigns and you all are very adept at being able to answer what you can answer and and gracefully saying what you know what you can't but can you share your your thoughts on the changes that have been made and whether from your viewpoint that undercuts the credibility of the commission
3: well if i could respond my first reaction is why why was this done And that's a question I still have. For approximately 50 years, the commission had the composition that that Chris talked about, the three types of stakeholders on the commission, the judges, the lawyers, and the uh, citizen members, all whom worked together uh, during my tenure at least, and I hope uh, that continues to be the case and was the case before, worked together to try to reach the best result possible based on whether or not a judge should be subject to discipline. And for the life of me, I cannot, unless it is as political as you sort of implied, um, but otherwise I don't see why the legislature felt the need to change the makeup of the Judicial Standards Commission. And I haven't heard anything substantive um to um, to answer that question, I haven't heard anything, and Chris may have, but um, from even the state bar, because the, the the lawyers are appointed by the state bar. The lawyers that serve on the commission are seasoned lawyers. They have they have to be a part of the judicial council. They have to have practiced law for more than ten years. So we're talking about, and most of them, all the ones that I worked with, had. Practice law for way more than 10 years, some more than 20 years, some way longer than I'd been uh, a lawyer as well. Um, and so they had a lot of seasoning, so to speak, and had appeared before many, many judges. And of course, most of them were uh, trial lawyers and uh, were in and out of different courts before different judges and seeing different litigants interact. Um, so I am still just so um, concerned about why the legislature felt a need to do this, and the other extension of that concern is why put it in the budget bill. Why was it not an independent bill, yeah. where perhaps someone like us, Chris and myself, or other uh, former uh, chairs of the of the commission, or other uh, members of the commission, or other general members of the public, or other legislators could. Uh, ask questions about why it is that this change needs to be made. This was put in a budget bill and, you know, you just kind of heard about it and then the budget passed and it's done. You know, it's, it's, it's done. That's, um that's very concerning and the manner in which it was done. Uh, uh, Professor Dawson feeds into, um, you know, one of the concerns you raised, was it done simply so that all Four, I guess, of the uh, members of the commission would be appointed by people who are right now members of the Republican Party. That being the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and the uh, the uh, Speaker and uh, uh, the ruling House member of the General Assembly. And if that is the case, if that is what was intended, that is very troubling. And my third point is that, as far as I understand. This legislation makes North Carolina just one of two states in the entire country with the judicial standards type commission like we have that does not have a lawyer on the commission. I believe it's West Virginia that's the other one, uh, and now North Carolina. What does that say about us? Mm-hmm. So, yes, I'm very upset about this legislation, how and why it came into being with no uh, explanation um, and none that I've heard. And so without further explanation, I think we are left to speculate that, you know, the most reasonable explanation is, is not a very good one. And it does seem very, very political uh, and not measured.
2: Yeah. So I, I have the same why question. And obviously, there are things that judicial standards does. They're good reasons that they be opaque. Um, this sort of radical reformation of it is not one of them Transparency is the best practice when you're going to uh, have a a radical change in this fashion. I also want to highlight that we're not operating on a blank slate here, and I'm just going to talk about things that have been publicly reported here, but this broader context is important to understand. Um, Previously, the legislature proposed a bill, if memory serves, that would have, when Carolyn Dubay was the head of judicial standards, eliminated the executive director position at judicial standards. Um, Subsequently, the Supreme Court, after a judicial standards investigation, again, this is public, um, in a bipartisan, unanimous decision, censured a member of the Court of Appeals for operating a toxic chamber, chambers for women. That person was a member of the Republican Party. It's regrettable that you have to say that, but given the context here, I think it's important to convey that. Um, Third, publicly reported by the News and Observer and the Carolina Journal that Carolyn Dubé was asked to resign after warning uh, judges about undue politicking and being careful about politicking while they were not uh, candidates. And then you have these judicial standards changes. So we're not operating on a blank slate here where maybe you get the benefit of the doubt or you have explained why you think it's necessary that, you know, Things look relatively political when you put them in that broader context. And, you know, again, perception matters, even if folks are not biased. The reality of the situation here is that 12 of the 14 members of judicial standards are now going to be appointed by Chief Justice Newby, um, uh, uh, Senator uh, Berger, and Speaker Moore. They're all a member of the same political party more than that to be put a finer point on it and again perception matters my appreciation is that eight of the 14 majority are going to be appointed by chief justice newby who serves with justice phil berger jr who is the son of Mm -hmm. senator berger so that's a majority of the commission and the final point i'll make there are certainly concerns about weaponization and Justice Earl's circumstance raised those concerns for many people. But also, back to the point that I made about the judge that was censured by a bipartisan unanimous Supreme Court, there are concerns about rubber stamping, about legitimate complaints that are raised. Um uh, and, you know, are are we gonna simply turn a blind eye if you're a member of a particular political party? You know, those are questions that I think given the lack of explanation and given what is happening here in the context, I think that those questions legitimately can be raised.
1: All right. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the changes to the composition of the North Carolina Judicial Standards Commission. We have with us here in our Zoom studio NCCU Law alum and a 20-year, almost 20-year veteran of the North Carolina Court of Appeals, Judge Wanda Bryant, who was also the chair of the North Carolina Judicial Standards Commission for six years. Also joining us is former North Carolina Court of Appeals Judge Chris Brook. He is an attorney with Patterson Harkavy and an adjunct constitutional law professor here at NCCU School of Law. We're going to have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We will be right back.
4: Hello, this is Shantae McNeil, and I'm a second year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your weekly announcement. Starting Monday, October 9th through October 30th from 6 to 8 p.m., the Cramman Institute is hosting a free Computers Basic course. The free beginners course will help you learn about computers, Microsoft, Windows, and other office programs as well as general uses of the internet and social media. The course consists of four in-person classes that focus on practical skills that will help you use a computer at home, work, or school. This course is for adults with little to no computer experience and if you attend all four classes you will receive a free refurbished computer system limited to one per household. To sign up, call 919-293-1133. This is Shantae McNeil with the Legal Eagle Review, and this is your weekly announcement. Thank you for listening.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host, Irving Joyner, and I have been talking this hour about the changes to the composition of the North Carolina Judicial Standards Commission, which has largely eliminated the participation of judges and provides one party with significant power in selecting the vast majority of members. We've been talking this hour with North Carolina Court of Appeals a judge, former Judge Wanda Bryant, who was also the chair of the North Carolina Judicial Standards Commission for six years, and she is a very proud alum of NCCU School of Law, and also former North Carolina Court of Appeals Judge Chris Brooke. He is an adjunct constitutional law professor here at NCCU School of Law, a very popular professor, my students tell me. And he is a lawyer with Patterson-Harkavy. So in the last segment, we were talking about the uh, why of these changes. Um, it's it's very curious. And if you're someone like me um, who doesn't have to um, be particularly careful with my uh, thinking and and kind of sharing my viewpoints, it appears very political to me. Um, And we appreciate your both you, Judge Bryan and Judge Brooke, your um, thoughtful questions um, and uh, sharing of of kind of the context. Um, Judge Brooke, you were noting that, you know, we're looking at these changes, not just on a blank slate, and you have to kind of put it into context. And it is very, very concerning. And the issue about weaponization of of the commission is really kind of front and center because of Justice Anita Earle's federal lawsuit that she has filed against the commission, because she has been, um, there's been a another complaint that has been filed against her and the commission is doing yet another investigation, a second investigation within a one-year time period. And Judge Bryant, you talked about um, that these hearings and investigations up to a certain point are certainly confidential. And it's because there are a number of complaints that are filed, many of which um, are, you know, do not have a basis, or not meritorious. And even if they are, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's appropriate for every investigation to be made public. Certainly there are some that that should be, but that the commission proceeds rightfully so very cautiously when there are complaints and there are investigations. But even when the investigation is confidential, there is potentially significant harm that is done to judges, especially if they are being um, targeted for these investigations. So even if the public doesn't know, um, can you talk about, either of you, uh, what typically happens when a judge learns that they're being investigated? Um, Like, you know, in terms of what they have to do in terms of seeking legal counsel, in terms of um, how it may impact the the way that they judge their interaction with the public. Either of you can can kind of share your thoughts on that.
3: Well, well I'll start and uh, on that because, and I'll talk about the atypical first, if you don't mind. Um, you mentioned Justice Anita Earls and her lawsuit against the Judicial Standards Commission. I don't ever recall there being uh, a lawsuit against the commission. We certainly were threatened uh, when I was uh, chair, but uh, we never had a lawsuit issued uh, against the commission. But Justice Earls uh, has, like other judges have from time to time, uh, waived confidentiality. And in doing so, she is allowed by rule to discuss uh, her case in the public arena uh, as as she is doing, um, and some of the reasons why, and um, and I'm sure this is probably one of those cases the commission would rather could not be waived, but that yeah you know, that's not up to them. Uh, I don't know that they have responded to uh, to the lawsuit yet, but um, but the typical manner is when a co- when a complaint comes in, uh, as I noted before, uh, some so many of the complaints are dismissed because there's no merit, and so you don't want uh, uh, a judge, it to be known that there has been a complaint against a judge that's been dismissed um, and because someone would assume, well, there, if there was a complaint, there must have been something to it. Well, actually, no, there there wasn't. So we try to protect uh, the, the judges and their reputations to that extent. Um, and the process is now that uh, since the commission itself can no longer issue public reprimands, no one knows about any discipline of a judge, uh, that's been imposed by judicial standards until that uh, complaint or that, that uh, uh, proposed discipline gets to the Supreme Court, which has the ultimate authority to determine whether or not to accept uh, the recommendation of the commission uh, to impose discipline, and uh, if so, w- impose the same discipline as recommended or a higher discipline or dismiss the case. So that is when the case becomes public uh, as a matter of rule, when the Supreme Court has issued its ruling on discipline. Um, so that's the the typical way. Um, other judges have from time to time uh, asked for a waiver of confidentiality. Um, uh, but again, Justice Earls comes to mind because it's so immediate. Um, but there have been many cases in which judges wanted, you know, their names cleared um, and, you um, the the Judicial Standards Commission doesn't you know doesn't do that, but um, it would not uh, oppose if a judge wanted to make a statement in you know the newspaper or radio or whatever. Um, it, uh, it would not oppose the, the the judge doing that upon waiver of his or her uh, confidentiality. Um, we issue a lot of issued a lot of letters of uh, caution to judges, which were private letters of caution. They didn't. Uh, uh, take effect. They weren't disciplinary uh, measures. They were just, uh, you know, warning to the judge that this conduct is of concern to the commission, but it's not something that we're going to uh, request a formal investigation at this time. Uh, but we just want you to be aware that you're kind of close to that line of conduct that can result in uh, discipline, so uh, be forewarned, so to speak.
0: Um, you know, let me just, just, just throw in that, that impartiality is obviously a clear point that we want to uh, to support uh for the uh, public and the credibility of the uh, the court system itself and particularly of the uh, judicial standards commission. Uh, what is it that a judge can say uh out in the uh, in the public? I know that they are, uh, First Amendment uh, protections of uh, freedom of speech protection under the North Carolina Constitution, First Amendment under the federal uh, constitution. And to note the absence of uh, racial minorities at the uh, uh, at the Court of Appeals level, at the Supreme Court level, at the Superior uh, Court level, all things of public record, uh, Stevie Wonder can see. Uh, the absences that uh, exists uh, there. So, how is uh, repeating or outlining these absences uh, in violation of any uh, judicial standards uh, that uh, that you know of that uh, that exists? So,
2: so I want to briefly just go back to um, some of the com- comments that uh, Judge Bryant was making, and that Professor Dawson question uh, questioned as well. I, I do want to flag that i you know i never had fortunately and to a certain extent because i was diligent about it and mindful about it i I never had a judicial standards complaint filed against me but i spent time talking to and studying judicial standards rules and the the canons making sure that i was compliant so even when you don't have a proceeding it's a time-consuming it should be a time-consuming part of your uh, being a judge There being complaints filed against you, and again, sometimes that needs to happen, is much more time consuming because you know there's a serious allegation oftentimes that's been made against you. And, Professor Dawson, to your concerns about weaponization, you know, you don't have to use this process to remove somebody from the bench to materially and negatively impact um, their life and their ability to serve uh, as they wish. Uh, as a judge and as effectively as they have been as a judge. So again, sometimes that's necessary, but there is, you know, it can be that that can be abused, right? To Professor Jordan's question about the First Amendment, um, and now I get to do this to y'all, well, of course the answer about what you can and cannot say as a judge is it depends and we'll figure out from this case. Um, But, I, you know, that that being said, uh, obviously, The right of a first amendment rights of a judge are not absolute, no one's first amendment rights are absolute just as you you can't say fire in a theater, but you also, as a judge can't say before a case comes before you, I'm going to decide the case this way and then claim that you had a first amendment right to do that. Um, that's, uh, that is, you know, totally anathema to the system that we want of impartiality and of, Fairness, both real and perceived. That being said, um, while I can imagine difficult line drawing cases, I think that Professor Joyner makes some important points here. In this instance, uh, my appreciation, which is not perfect of the circumstances, that Justice Earls did not produce the data at question, but the state solicitor general, Ryan Park, produced information about who was arguing at the state Supreme Court. And the reality of that is that three quarters of the people arguing at the state Supreme Court are white men. So there really are very limited opportunities for people of color and women to argue at the state Supreme Court. And, you know, I have this concern, particularly in the private bar, is that that becomes a self fulfilling pri- prophecy, is that the only people who are having success. <laughs> at the state Supreme Court are white men and therefore clients believe that those are the only people who can have success at the state Supreme Court when there's no necessary correlative relationship there whatsoever. But it, that that can become a spiraling situation where 75% becomes 95% rather quickly. And, you know, Justice Searles highlighted that that um, troubled her, and it troubled her from the bench. And I, I in the In the world in which we live, right now, and all of the troubling things that people, including very powerful people, oftentimes say, the idea that expressing a wish that the most powerful courthouse in North Carolina was one in which the litigators arguing represented and reflected North Carolina, strikes me as a not particularly problematic thing to say nor something that would call the judge's capacity to serve impartially into question at least in my mind so um there, there are going to be edge cases and difficult line drawing cases from what i know this this is not one of them professor Jordan. and if i
3: could Add one more time and one more thing or two more things. Um, the, the situation that, that Chris just described uh, with respect to Justice Earls and her comments about the the, the makeup of the uh, people arguing before the Supreme Court, if, if that had come to my uh, 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 commission as a, as a complaint uh, uh, when I was chair, I mean, I, I assure you that that would not have become a uh, a formal complaint. It would not have uh, resulted in a formal investigation or or any kind of proposed, um, you know, uh, reprimand. Um, I just I don't get it. Maybe I don't know at all. And I, uh, and I certainly don't know at all. But I, I I don't get that. Uh, the other thing, though, uh, Professor Joyner, in response to your question about uh, what can you say, uh, Canon Seven, I think it's still Canon Seven of the uh, Code of Judicial Conduct. Um, you know. Applies when people are running campaigning, as we talked about, uh, to uh, be judges or when they are judges and they're running their re-election campaigns. Um, and most people, um, you know, during that time, they're given you know a bit more ability under the code to say more from First Amendment standpoint, generally speaking, uh, than they would otherwise. One of the issues that has arisen, and I think resulted in some of the disarray, is probably a really light way of, of mentioning it around uh, uh, Carolyn DeBay, who I just you know thought the world of when she was executive director. But after I left, but one of the things we dealt with when I was director uh, or uh, chair of a commission was, once a person was elected, you know they they run under Canon Seven, they were elected to as a judge, and You know, for superior court of appeals and Supreme Court justices, they had an eight-year term. District court judges had a four-year term. Most times, or many times, the judges would immediately after being elected with an eight-year term would file a letter of intent to run again. Now, what that used to do was allow them then to be considered candidates. I mean, can you really be a candidate for eight years while you're a sitting judge? But that was one of those sort of you know fallacies of the code that we were really never able to to um to to, to do away with, but we would just caution judges that yes, you filed a letter of intent, but we sort of view that as you know, Canon Seven being really applicable to you during the time that you are actively campaigning, not that you can actively campaign for yourself or anyone else for, you know, another seven years before you have to run. So um, that that is an issue that uh, I think came up, and that uh, Carolyn DeBay expressed some, you know, concern about, um, and I, you know, I'd express concern about, but uh, it was one that we uh, did not resolve. I don't know what the current state is right now, but um, there you have it.
1: Yeah, and in in the the last minute that we have, um, I want to just kind of underscore. the the notion that uh, Judge Brooke mentioned about the harm can be caused just by the filing of the complaint and the investigation, even if it's confidential. And while Justice Earls has waived her confidentiality, which was necessary certainly to file the federal lawsuit, um, you've got to think she had to hire lawyers, right? And so this is the second go round. and, And you just, when we think about politics, just nationally, certainly statewide, locally, economics plays a role. Who is even able to run for office? And then when you also burden um, members of particular groups with the added um, financial consequences of bringing, of having to respond to complaints that are politically motivated, or, or at least have the perception of being. When we think about our democracy and and what type of democracy we want to to have um, in terms of encouraging people to play a role, not just as voters but as elected officials, and then you kind of think about the economics of that. Uh, the harm, you know, goes far beyond what those of us that are looking on the outside in can probably fully appreciate, so I wish we had more time because we'd love to, to get your thoughts on, um, on more of these really um, important issues and your comments and your observations have been really helpful, I think, in helping us kind of wrap our head around uh, this issue. And I think it's been incredibly valuable for our listeners to learn about this. My guess is it hasn't been on most people's radar. Hopefully it will be now. Um, but we'll have to uh, have you back as guest as we kind of see what happens with the Judicial Standards Commission. Hopefully, we can correct course in some way. Um, but we really appreciate your time and, and your um, your comments and your thoughts. So we'd like to thank our guest, NCCU Law alum and former North Carolina Court of Appeals Judge Wanda Bryant, who was the six-year chair of the North Carolina Judicial Standards Commission. And
3: the and only for... female in the history of the commission. And
1: I'm sorry? The only female chair in the history of the commission. I'll just add that. Thank you. And the only female chair in the history of the commission, which we're happy and delighted that you were the first. We are greatly saddened that you are the only. Hopefully that will change as well. And we'd like to thank our adjunct constitutional law professor here at nccu school of law former north carolina court of appeals judge chris brooke who is a lawyer with patterson harkavy and of course we'd like to thank you our listening audience for spending your sunday evening with us and we hope you have enjoyed the show and that you'll take the information that you've learned and share it with your family and friends and community if you have any questions about this topic or any of the other topics that we cover. Please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.